0: With our economy, health care, and way of life in turmoil, we turn to the optimist to look through the fog and remind us the future is still bright. Anthony Scaramucci, also known as the Mooch, often considers himself the embodiment of the American dream. From his humble beginnings on Long Island to making a name for himself on Wall Street, Scaramucci's larger-than-life persona eventually brought him to the steps of the White House, where he served as communications director under President Trump. Now he joins me on this episode of Influencers to discuss America's new economic crisis and rate Washington's approach to the coronavirus pandemic. Hello, everyone. I'm Andy Serwer. Welcome to Influencers, and welcome to our guest, Anthony Scaramucci, founder and managing partner of SkyBridge. Anthony, nice to see you.
1: It's good to be here. Thanks, Andy, for including me on your show.
0: So there's so much to talk about, Anthony. Let's start off with the coronavirus and the economy. Um, Things are not looking good right now. How dire do you think the situation is? How bad do you think it's going to get?
1: Well, I, just to apply context, this is my ninth crisis dating back to 1987. So I've been doing this for 33 or so years. Uh, this is an interesting one because you've got three things going on at the same time that haven't happened before. You have an oil shock going on with a health care scare and a financial panic. And so all the warning lights are are on on the economy. But juxtaposed to that, you have a global coordinated monetary policy and you have about $10 trillion of stimulus that's going to hit the American economy. And what I would say to people out there is think of this as a national disaster. It's a 50-state hurricane. Uh, But the good news is instead of having your house demolished or the water infrastructure, the electrical grid, You're going to be able to return to work after the work stoppage. Our banks are in very good shape. The government will be stimulating the economy. And so I think we just have to look past the human tragedy that's going on. And I don't mean to make light of that human tragedy. I think it's absolutely horrific. But if you're just asking me about the economy, if we can see through three, six or nine months, I actually think we'll be in pretty good shape better than people think. Uh, And just quickly on statistics. You've you, you've shut down the U.S. economy for three months, but we're operating at about 35 percent operating capacity. That's our healthcare system, uh, Yahoo Finance, uh, our UPS system, Amazon, etc. So it's about a 3.7 trillion dollar hit to the economy, and so they're hitting that, in my opinion, with overwhelming force. 6.2 trillion dollar stimulus from the government plus a four trillion dollar buying program that both Jerome Powell and Steven Mnuchin said they would leave uncapped. So for those reasons, yes, we're in a bad news cycle right now. And it's you know human nature to get very focused on the bad news cycle and panic. Uh, but that's never been the right decision in the 33 years that I've been doing this. The time to be buying and thinking about opportunity is right now.
0: But don't you think, Anthony, that our lives will be, to an extent, permanently changed, that some businesses will go out of business, that some companies will disappear, they'll never come back? You look at the restaurant business, for instance, services, small businesses, aren't they going to get crushed here?
1: Well, listen, I do think that a lot of businesses won't come back, but I think that I've always been blown away by... American resiliency and the small business entrepreneur. Uh, And so I have a a friend of mine that was in the ski equipment business. It hasn't been great skiing in our area because of global warming. And he switched to, you know, summer furniture products. So so the point point being is, yes, I can see on the margin businesses closing, some restaurants closing, but up against that with all this uh, stimulus going into the system, there'll be new startups and there'll be green shoots in the economy of different activity. I think I think one place I would be sort of worried about is the commercial real estate market in the urban centers, because you you put a population at home for three or four months, they start to realize through technology and data, they can probably get a lot done with less space in their offices. So yes, there's no question there will be elements of the economy that change. But I can tell you one thing I believe that will not change is human nature. And so people often say after they read about an airline crash that they're not going on the plane. And then they book two tickets for themselves and their wife to go to Hawaii. So in my opinion, it may be a slow start, but people will be back at baseball games. They will be back in restaurants. Uh, Certainly, if the prospects of getting a viral vaccine Are available, and I don't know if that's six or 18 or 24 months away, because I'm not a scientist. But but when that happens, I think that will also uh, put a uh, you know it'll it'll be a boost of optimism for the economy. And and one last point, which I definitely think will happen, uh, the United States will form another cabinet agency. Think about what we did after 9/11. We had the Department of Homeland Security. I predict there will be a another cabinet-level position. Maybe it'll be called the Department of Pandemic Defense or something like that to make sure that we are always well stocked with things that you would need in a pandemic, which unfortunately, you know, the world ourselves specifically have been caught off guard. I
0: want to get back to that Washington response in a minute. But first, I want to talk about the markets, equities. It sounds like you would suggest you know, getting into the market at this point or strategically buying or looking to buy. And maybe others have as well. I mean, are you surprised the market hasn't really gone down as much as some people thought it might?
1: Well, listen, I mean, uh, uh, you you hit a 36 percent low uh, between the high and low on the S&P and the Dow. Uh, And on the Monday that that happened, if you looked at the VIX, which is a very good indicator of... uh, flourishing activity and volatility. The VIX went from 87 to 44 in about two and a half hours. And the last time I seen that happen was March 9th of 2009. So it seemed like a full washout out there where there was tremendous deleveraging, margin calls being met, and weak holders of stock panicking out of stocks. Uh, Up against that, you had the government announce two unbelievable stimulus Programs and I just want to draw context for people back to 2008. The government uh, had a 900 or so billion dollar stimulus program, and they spent about two trillion dollars over 18 months in terms of asset purchases and quantitative easing. This time, you're talking about 6.2 trillion, and you're talking about four trillion dollars from the Fed with a pledge. You know that the Fed will go uh, three times as fast. So you sort of have twice the money from the Fed, and they want to execute that in one-third of the time. Uh, Those things give me great comfort. I I don't see a scenario where human nature completely changes and we're in a global depression. I see more of a scenario where we're obviously going to go into a recession. It'll be steep. The numbers will look very bad, but it will be impermanent because it's a result of everybody having to be, be home. And those restaurants that we're referencing to be closed. You know, the president made a statement uh, a few days ago talking about p- potentially creating business lunch deductibility again. Uh, that would be a big boost to restaurants, in my opinion. So so there's a lot of things that could get done from tax and social policy that can help the economy. But remember, we're going to be leaving our homes with the electrical get in place, the banks in pristine shape as it relates to their balance sheets. and. And again, I'm not trying to be overly optimistic. I just get paid as a professional investor to try to see through the current crisis. And Andy, you and I are old enough to know that we've been through a few of these rodeos. And it's reminiscent of me in November of 2008 when Warren Buffett wrote that very famous essay in the New York Times on the op-ed page where he said, now is the time to buy stocks. And he explained why he felt that way. And I sort of feel like we're back there again.
0: Right now, of course, and just to do a little bit more on this, the market and timing, which is maybe a bad word, but he wrote that in October. And then, of course, we continue to go down to March. It still was a good time to buy if you had bought in October because you still would have made a lot of money over the next five and 10 years, of course. But, but just not to put too fine a point on it, but you're saying maybe the low in March was it. I mean, I'm not going to hold you if we go down another 10 percent. But you don't think there's multiple more shoes to drop with the market?
1: I, I, I think that there will be a lot of volatility, and I think there'll be a lot of uncertainty. Uh, but if you remember from the Firefighters book, which was written, you know, a compilation of, of writings from Ben Bernanke and Tim Geithner and Hank Paulson, one of the things they said in that book that they wish they had done was gone faster, and they wish they had uh, hit it with harder tools or larger macroeconomic tools. And I know that uh, Secretary Paulson is in close touch with Steven Mnuchin. And I think a lot of the plans that are being implemented right now, uh, it's unbelievable to say this, but the 2008 crisis seemed to be a dress rehearsal for the 2020 pandemic. And so for me, uh, when I look at the magnitude of force that's going to be applied against this uh, from a macroeconomic perspective, I'm not going to be able to time the market, sure. Could it drop another 5 or 10%? Absolutely. Uh, but as you just said about the Warren Buffett essay, 6, 12, 24 months from now, will we be in way better shape than people would have expected at this time? I believe that that will be the case. And so for me, uh, uh, and I tell investors, you have to think long term, uh, particularly in the stock market. You own that business. You're taking the ride over a market cycle, don't get juked out of your stocks right here. Uh, it's never been a good idea to sell in a panic.
0: You know I guess we can take some comfort from this point you you keep making Anthony, which is the, the magnitude of the response from Washington. So I want you to, to give it a rating. I mean, and you haven't brought up someone that you'd like to talk about from time to time, which is President Trump. And so let me ask you about the overall response from Washington, which it sounds like you're giving them a thumbs up. But then, what about the president's response to this crisis as well?
1: Well, the only reason I haven't talked about the president, you haven't asked me any questions about him. But but listen, I mean, (laughs) the truth of the matter is, I am very happy with where we are now. Uh, It's been 11 days since he made a 180 degree turn, uh, and so thank God he did that because it will save lives. Had we moved as quickly as South Korea did, uh, remember the the first cases showed up in South Korea on the same day as the United States. Uh, We were advised to move in their direction. The pandemic experts and the epidemiologists here in the United States advised the White House to do that. The president made a decision not to do that. I don't want to be the Monday morning quarterback, uh, but clearly had we moved in February, we would have lower death numbers and the great irony is, he's the business president. Uh, it would have helped out the economy immeasurably economy if we had moved in February. But we're here now, and I think the response over the last 11 days has been way better. Uh, but I can take you back to last week where we were talking about opening the economy on April 12th. There was nobody on Wall Street that has gotten up to speed on the mathematics of this situation that thought that that was real information. You know, the president talks about fake news all the time, but a lot of the things that he's saying coming out of his mouth are sort of like fake science. So what I'm hoping is we can get what's coming from the White House to be more congruent with the reality of the situation. And so we're getting there, that's way better, uh, and but we are behind, and as a result of which, this is a tragedy. You know, there's, there's, there's gonna be a lot of people uh, sick from this disease, uh, many people, many more than was necessary, frankly, are going to die from the disease. And hopefully, this will be a good uh, foundation for what we need to do in the future uh, to prevent this sort of calamity, or at least to reduce the effects of, of this sort of event.
0: So overall, what kind of rating would you give uh, the president on this crisis on a scale from one to 10, Anthony?
1: Well, I would say uh, I would say from January first to March eleventh, I would give him a one on a scale of one to ten. And from March eleventh to today, he's probably getting a seven. Uh, but let's focus on from March eleventh to today because the truth of the matter is, Andy, we are all Americans. Uh, we're in a huge healthcare crisis. It's literally a war with an invisible molecule or a set of molecules. And we need the president to do well. So I don't want to be that Monday morning quarterback, you know, analyzing everything that went wrong and and so forth. But we're here now. And I like directionally where we're going right now.
0: Anthony, what's your take on all these medical shortages that we're reading about? Um, That's that's disconcerting, isn't it?
1: Well, I think, I think there are two major tragedies that we're learning about the United States from this crisis. Uh, tragedy number one, our health care system was not ready for a pandemic. We're underbedded in the United States. I mean, you probably knew these statistics, Andy, and maybe your viewers knew these statistics. I did not know them. We have 1.1 million hospital beds for a population of 330 million people. If you add the undocumented workers— and immigrants. It's probably 340 million people live in the United States, and we have 1.1 million hospital beds, 300,000 of which are ICU beds. And so, unfortunately, we're underbedded in our hospitals, we're undersupplied in our hospitals. The ventilator situation is obviously a, a great tragedy because when we start to get the peak numbers, uh, the truth of the matter is there's probably going to be one ventilator available for every 50 people that need a ventilator. And so that's, that's going to be a great human tragedy. So, so that's, that's one set of observations. The second set of observations, which I think is equally bad, is that 85 to 90% of the American people are living paycheck to paycheck. And so when they get a work stoppage or they get this sort of abrupt outcome, they don't have a lot of savings uh, to make up the difference. And so this helicopter drop of money, I think it's a good thing. Uh, But I recommended uh, several weeks ago, wrote an essay about this, that you sort of needed uh, $3,000 per adult and $1,500 per child uh, if you wanted to take what Colin Powell used to say about the military. If you want to beat this thing, the Powell Doctrine dictated if you needed 60,000 troops, well, double the amount of the troops. I think you sort of need that in a stimulus, in a Main Street sort of stimulus for lower- and middle-income people. So, so that's another set of tragic uh, outcomes. I'm hoping in the aftermath of this, we get a very good policy response where people start focusing on how we can close the income gap, what things we can do from a social tax policy, cultural changes uh, to, to close that gap. But I think this is going to be very painful. I mean, it's painful for all of us, of course, but for certain people who don't have a lot of savings, you know, my heart goes out to those people.
0: Anthony, what can CEOs of big public companies do here? On the one hand, they've got to look to their investors and Wall Street and their shareholders. On the other hand, you know, they probably want to keep their employees employed and also support the economy by making donations and doing the right thing. How is this a test of leadership that way?
1: Well, I, I certainly think it's a test of leadership. You know, I, I, you know, we we've been around for 15 years now at SkyBridge. Uh, I decided to reduce payroll a little bit in context of what's going on in the markets, but made a pledge to the employees that we're we're keeping every single person at work. We're going to be working through the pandemic remotely. You know, God forbid if we ever have to have layoffs, we would do that well after this thing is gone. I mean, just imagine the nightmare. Of you working at a company uh, where you, you spent a lot of time and energy at that company, and they're calling you in the middle of a pandemic where you can't even leave your house, and you're you're being laid off. So, so to me, I think good culture and good values are going to be represented right here. Uh, I tell people think about where you are going to be in a year or two when this is over, and how would you like to be defined in the in the crisis itself? And so. I'm hoping that business leaders, large and small, to the extent that they're able to do this, are positioning themselves and their employees for the comeback. You know I own a restaurant. We've been there together, the Hunt and Fish Club. Uh, We closed that restaurant in March, the first week of March, which I thought was a good defensive maneuver for our employees because many of them left the uh, city without any symptoms, thank God. And we're now looking at the government stimulus program. We're, We're able to get some money from the stimulus program bring all those workers back. Now, obviously, we have to wait for the New York City Department of Health to give us the all-clear sign to open the restaurant. But, but I, I love the fact that my operating partner, Nelson Braff, took the step. Uh, we were about to get a distribution of profits at the owner's level, and we took the step of leaving that in the company's checking account and to pay uh, the employees during the crisis. And I think if people at a CEO level way bigger, obviously, than that small restaurant. If they think like that, uh, it's, it's going to be good for their culture. It's actually going to be long-term good for their customers. And people will reflect fondly about them uh, years from now in terms of what they were doing in the breach. What were they doing in the war? Were they acting valorously and with high integrity? And I hope, I hope people will think like that.
0: And what about the richest Americans, too? Similar kind of question, the people on the Forbes 400 shouldn't they be doing stuff here? I mean, they accumulated vast amounts of wealth over the past 15 years in particular. How can they pitch in?
1: Well, listen, you know, I mean, my hat's off to Bill Gates. Uh, uh, He gave a Ted talk in 2015 describing the problem. I think he's out there uh, with the foundation doing a lot of different things and helping people try to come up with the right vaccine and so forth. Uh, But, Andy, you you know people, I know people. We've been around the block long enough to know that uh riches is a force multiplier of your personality. So if you're a good person and a generous person, when you get money, you're able to magnify that. But if you're a miserable person or a miser or a scrooge-like character, when you get money, well, guess what? That also magnifies. And so Uh, You know, there'll be people on the Forbes 400 that will act in a way that's charitable and gracious in a period like this. And then there will be the very poor that will act charitable and gracious. And so uh, we both know that there will be people that we would say, geez, I wish that that person would think more broadly about mankind and uh, be generous in a situation like this. But we know that's not going to happen. I learned long ago not to judge human frailty too harshly. Um, I, I try to put things into perspective, uh, even my own human frailty and the mistakes that I've made in life. Uh, but I think this is a big, big seismic global event, and I hope it will cause people to take a pause, uh, take inventory of what's really important to them, and recognize that uh, you know it's, it's in our best interest, and again through market forces, to close the wealth gap and to find ways to fortify people who may be blue-collar workers or lower-middle-income people, uh, give them opportunity and to make them feel aspirational about their lives, but also their children's lives. You know, you and I had many conversations off-camera where I grew up in a working-class family. My dad was a crane operator for 42 years. Uh, He was an hourly worker, but he had a very good wage, and so we lived in the middle class. I would never disrespect my dad's work ethic, by telling anybody I grew up poor, but we had this aspiration. I remember sitting at his dinner table as a kid, he was a pretty strict guy, and he was like, you know, you're going to do your homework, you're going to do this and this, you're going to go to college, and then one day you're going to get a piece of the American dream. Those people today, because of where the wages are, the real incomes are down 20 to 25% over 30 years. Those people, we've moved those people from aspirational to desperational and maybe this pandemic will be a wake-up call for policymakers, politicians, macroeconomists, the very wealthy, the Ford's 400. Well, they'll examine what's going on in the society and say, okay, we can do this better, we can make it better, uh, and it won't be any less yachts or any less clothing or fine dining uh, for any individual, but it'll be way better for the social progress of the society. But won't we
0: have to legislate that somehow, Anthony, because you could argue that the way we got to this wealth and income inequality was through, say, deregulation, um, lower interest rates and those types of things. So won't there have to be laws promulgated to sort of address that ultimately?
1: Well, I I certainly believe that. I think somebody looking back on this period of time and let's call this period of time from 2007 to where we are now, and somebody took a snapshot of that. 13-, 12-, 15-year period of time, they would say that the monetary policy, the the accident of the monetary policy, which was very healing after the crisis, uh, probably created some of the income divide. And I'm not saying anybody did that intentionally, uh, but when you lowered rates like that, the people that held the assets, they got the inflation. You didn't get much wage growth. You didn't get much wage activity. People did return back to work. Uh, but I think that's where the anger is. You know, the great irony is the central banking coordination probably created the rise of a Donald Trump or a Bernie Sanders, which were pul- pulsing out both candidates, pulsing out the anger and the populism in the society, uh, which was probably born from the uh, central banking coordination. Had we thought more broadly in 2008 into 2009, yes, we're going to lower rates. But we're also going to do the tough things like an infrastructure bill, a jobs training bill, uh, a long-term plan, not a two-minute plan, but a 10- or 20-year plan to right-size the K-12 through 12 public education process, uh, we would be in a different environment today. And so what I fear right now is because politicians have, in general, been more interested in excoriating each other on cable news or ripping into each other, what I fear right now is that they'll allow for that easy one step solution, which is global coordinated monetary policy, printing of money and and that sort of thing. And, and I'm hoping that they'll think way more long-term. You know, there's there's things in our country that can be fixed, uh, but the bad news for the country and bad news for politicians because they're not willing to say the truth about this, there are 10, 20, or possibly even 30-year fixes. And what politician do you and I know Andy, that has a 20 year plan for anything. And so hopefully this shock, and it's a global shock, will cause people to say, you know what, we've got to find leaders and political leadership that are more focused on the long term and more focused on fortifying the entire society than the short term gimmicks and the sound bites that are effective on cable news.
0: You mentioned President Trump, and so we have to talk about the election, which is coming up fast. And of course you have all this history with the president. You said he was not going to win re-election. Now maybe you think he has a better chance. And then we've got, it looks like Biden firmly in the mix. So where do you come out on all this right now, Anthony?
1: So when, when you and I spoke in Davos, Switzerland, the consensus among the elites there was that he was going to win a resounding election. And what I said to you, I had go, I'd gone to Davos for 15 years and more or less every time the elites uh, coagulated around one idea, it was resoundingly wrong. They said limitless growth in 2007. Uh, we, went, we went over the cliff. In 2009, they said the world was going to go into a global depression, and it was the rise of a 10-year extraordinary bull market. And so in 16, they said Secretary Clinton would be the president, and Donald Trump would not win the Republican nomination. So the consensus was that he's going to win. I still think he's going to lose, but I think the odds of him winning have improved for him because this is viewed as a war. His approval ratings are up right now, although in a lot of the red states, they haven't been affected by the virus the way the coastal cities are or where the international transfer points are in the United States, like New York or Northern California. Uh, we've got a, a hot spot in Detroit. We've got one down in New Orleans. And the cases are growing, obviously, in Miami and, and, and so forth. So We'll have to see what happens to his political standing and his approval ratings once the pandemic reaches its high point. It's obviously very, very tragic, but I don't, I don't think he wins. Uh, number one, he's going to have a recession in an election year. There has been no modern president that's been able to withstand a recession in the election year, and you will remember George Herbert Walker Bush had a recession in the beginning of that year. 1992. The economy had already improved and pulled out of recession, and he still went on to lose the election. And he was also somebody who was a great popular figure during a war. He had a 91% approval rating. 14 months later, he lost the election. So I'm still reasonably confident Donald Trump will lose this election. And it's not because I have personal animus towards him, or we're in a personal fight. It's just an objective clear-eyed analysis of what's going on right now, I also think the hysteria that he creates with the tweeting and the nonsense that he says at these press briefings, which are always fact checked to be incorrect, uh, are going to hurt him as well. I think people are fatiguing from that. So, Andy, I think this will ultimately be a referendum, as most incumbent presidential elections are, on a vote for President Trump or a vote against him more than anything else. It's really not the other candidate. It's, are we voting this guy to stay in or are we voting him out? And I think he gets voted out on a number of different reasons. One is I think people are exhausted from all of the nonsense. Number two, I think that these press conferences and the litany of lies are growing tiresome for moderates and independents. I will accept the fact that he does have a firewall and conservative talk, radio, and conservative punditry in terms of nighttime television anchors that are, are taking the full ride with him. They represent a firewall for him, but I do think the data is suggesting to me that he will not win reelection, and I'll give your listeners one data point that would be very concerning to me if I was on the president's campaign. There were 500,000 additional registered Democratic voters that went to the polls during a pandemic in Super Tuesday 3 in Michigan. And, and that alarmed a lot of people. And even Michael Moore, who's been living up in Michigan his whole life, said, okay, wait a minute, the data is changing here. The fervor and passion may be on the side of the Democrats this year in 2020, as opposed to what it was against the Democrats in 2016.
0: And final question, Anthony, um, what about your own aspirations, your own political aspirations? Would you consider running for office in the state of New York?
1: Well, you know, I, people ask me that all the time, I guess, because I, I got accidentally involved in politics, Andy. It's sort of like being Michael Corleone in Godfather 3 You can't get yourself out of it. But, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I had uh, you know, personal problems in my marriage while I was working in the White House, my wife and I have subsequently reconciled. So I tell people, look, I'm, I'm running for re-election in my marriage. OK, I'm, I'm more concerned about that and my family. And Andy, I don't know about your marriage, but I think I'm on like a one-day term in my marriage. And I can't figure out if there's term limits or I'm going to get termed out or not. So I'm extremely focused on that. Uh, I'm not a politician, so I'm not going to lie and not tell you that I haven't looked at the idea of doing something like that. Uh, but I think I have a lot of work left to do at SkyBridge. Uh, in terms of growing that company and getting it positioned to where I think it could be. So if you ask me that in five or 10 years, uh, I'm sure I'll have a different answer. But right now, I'm just very extremely focused on my family and trying to get my customers and clients uh, better positioned after this pandemic.
0: All right, we will be watching Anthony Scaramucci, founder and managing partner of Skybridge. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Hey, good to be here and thank you for including
0: me. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time.